You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello there, loyal listeners. Because of the passing away of a loved one in my family, the second part of my ongoing series will be delayed by about a week. However, in the meanwhile, I wanted to share this episode of one of my favorite podcasts, The Conspirators, hosted by the completely fictitious Nate Hale. Every episode, Nate Hale finds some dark tales from history to share. Baffling tales of mysterious, seemingly supernatural occurrences, inspiring stories of survival, and unsettling cases of unsolved murder. He's very good at finding and picking the kinds of stories I like to cover on historical blindness. And though his focus may not be so much on debunking and exposing, he always presents the rational explanation when there is one available. Because of this, I think listeners of Historical Blindness will really enjoy The Conspirators. And if you've never listened, you've got a huge back catalog to keep you intrigued and creeped out through Halloween and beyond. In the following episode, The Blood Gospel, he shares a variety of stories about the cultures and people who believed that drinking blood could magically prolong their lives. It's the perfect bridge between parts one and two of my series on vampires. I hope you enjoy it, and go subscribe to The Conspirators wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the episode notes for links to the show. Throughout the history of the Catholic Church, there have been hundreds of popes. Some good, some not so good. For example, there's the story of Pope Stephen VI, who was so angry at his predecessor, Pope Formosus, that even after the man died, he still ordered his rotting corpse be dug up, redressed in papal robes, and put on trial. Pope Formosus was found guilty, by the way. There was also Pope Alexander VI, who was born Rodrigo Borgia. He was the father of Lucretia Borgia, with whom he was rumored to be having an incestuous relationship. And even if that's not true, it is also well known about Pope Alexander's penchant for participating in wild orgies. He was even believed to have fathered several illegitimate children during his tenure as Pope. But if we're talking about the Pope with the strangest history for keeping his legacy alive, then you very likely have to look at the story of Pope Innocent VIII, who it's claimed drank the blood of three children in a last-ditch effort to stay alive. No, Pope Innocent wasn't a vampire, at least not to the best of anyone's knowledge. Pope Innocent VIII is often cited as having received the first blood transfusion in history. Although not necessarily the first successful transfusion. He was brought to the papal throne in the 15th century by a major political puppet master named Cardinal Giuliano della Rovera. Upon becoming Pope, Innocent took a strong anti-magic stance in the Vatican and vigorously persecuted a large number of suspected witches. This included several intellectuals who dared question the Catholic Church. 
Pope Innocent was also well known for practically bankrupting the papal treasury by dabbling too heavily in Italian politics and attempting to pit rival provinces against one another. But despite being so widely reviled even in his own day, Pope Innocent was said to take extreme measures to prolong his own life. In 1492, Innocent suffered a stroke that left him in a coma. In order to restore him to full health, the Pope's doctors attempted a radical new procedure by feeding him human blood. According to the story, the Pope's primary physician, Giacometti di San Genesio, bribed three ten-year-old boys to give up a little of their blood for the procedure. But instead, the Pope's physicians went ahead and decided to drain every drop from their veins. It had long been understood that blood was the magical elixir of life. Thus came about the idea that perhaps we could take this life-giving fluid from one individual and transfer it to another. There was even one 15th century physician named Marsalis Ficino, who famously said, Why shouldn't our old people, namely those who have no other recourse, likewise suck the blood of a youth? A youth, I say, who is willing, happy, and temperate, whose blood is of the best, but perhaps too abundant. It was this line of thinking that justified the belief that a pope's life was so important that if it meant draining the life out of three children, so be it. But it should come as no surprise that the oral blood transfusion failed. And on July 25, 1492, Pope Innocent VIII died. It's also been reported that he attempted to make amends on his deathbed for being a pretty terrible pope. He begged the cardinals to forgive him his sins and urged them to pick a better man than he to become a successor. Sadly, that wasn't to be the case. Pope Innocent's successor was Pope Alexander VI, the former Rodrigo Borgia of the wild orgies and incest fame. Keep in mind, there are some historians who doubt the veracity of the story of Pope Innocent's blood drinking. And in fact, there have been some who have suggested the tale is nothing more than a bit of anti-Semitic propaganda meant to slander the Jews. Throughout the Catholic Church, there was already a long tradition of spreading outlandish stories about Jews ritually sacrificing Christian babies on Passover, and even bathing in Christian blood that's often referred to as the blood libel. Some versions of the story have suggested that the Pope's physician was himself Jewish, while other versions have stated that the three young boys were the Jewish members of the story. Still others have suggested the transfusion story was actually cooked up by the man who first wrote about it, a guy named Stefano Infisura, who really hated Pope Innocent and who had plenty of reason to want to slander the church. Despite this, there does remain some evidence that Pope Innocent might have really drank human blood from a cup in order to stay alive. And that's not the only such story you can find either. Throughout history, you can find numerous examples of individuals who turned to drinking blood. From the ancient Egyptians to the Romans to a bunch of desperate people who turned to blood drinking to save their lives. I'm going to tell you all about it. I'm Nate Hale, kicking back with a warm mug of O positive, and this is The Conspirators. Even long before the biblical age, blood and bodily fluids have been held in high regard for their magical properties. 
Since blood was generally hidden inside the human body except in cases where wounds occurred, or at times of birth or female menstruation, many cultures came to view blood as having two natures, one good, one bad. You can see this in the story of the Gorgon Medusa, who, in addition to having her head full of snakes, was also said to have two types of blood running through her veins. On the left side, her blood was lethal, while on the right, it was life-giving. Across the globe, nobody had any real understanding of what exactly blood was or where it came from. But despite this, many ancient cultures still understood its importance. Many cultures made blood sacrifices to appease the gods. The Sumerians of Mesopotamia considered the vascular liver to be the center of life. The priests of ancient Babylon took a stance similar to the ancient Greeks in that there were two main types of blood. The bright red day blood that flowed in the arteries and the dark night blood that flowed in the veins. It's interesting to note that the word taboo is actually believed to originate from our fear and lack of understanding of blood, particularly when it comes to female anatomy. The term taboo is derived from a couple of Polynesian words, the word tapua, which means menstruation, and the word taboo, spelled T-A-B-U, which means apart. It was actually a pretty common practice around the world to keep women on their periods separate from the rest of society because they were thought to be somehow unclean. There were even communities in early America where it was thought that the curse could cause a woman to spoil meat if they touched it. But over the centuries, as medicine advanced, physicians around the world did begin to develop a better sense of what blood was for. There was an ancient Chinese medical text from about 4500 BCE that appears to be the earliest time anyone correctly suggested that the beating of the heart was directly tied to the pulsing of the veins. A similar concept was described in an ancient Egyptian papyrus that is sometimes attributed to Imhotep, the chief official of the pharaoh Dozier, who lived around 2650 BCE. The Smith Papyrus, as it's come to be known, talks about a cardiac system in which the body contains a series of channels that distributes life-giving blood, air, and water to the body where needed. The idea was that these channels could sometimes become blocked like the River Nile, causing illness, in which case a laxative could be prescribed in order to unblock the channel and cure whatever ailed the patient. By the second millennium BCE, ancient Greek philosophers had also begun to study human circulation. Aristotle wrote back in the 4th century that blood was manufactured in the heart and distributed to other parts of the body. Erasistratus, an anatomist from the 3rd century, is credited for coming up with a working theory on the heart's valves. He also determined that the heart was not the center of life, but instead the body's pumping station that helped keep life going. He also distinguished between the veins and arteries, which he also claimed carried the animal spirit within them. But the 2nd century physician Galen disagreed with this assessment, though, and instead believed that blood was made in the liver, and that it moved back and forth in the body as it was consumed by human tissues. Galen was the most predominant physician in the Roman Empire, and his opinion was held in the highest regard. His theories about blood remained the dominant belief until they were challenged in a medical treatise written by William Harvey called De Muro Cordis in 1628. But long before then, many people began to believe that blood had magical properties to cure disease and give life. During the Middle Ages, the Golden Legend became the most widely read book after the Bible. This was a 13th century tome that talked about the holy healing powers of blood with regard to several saints. 
Around the same time, there also grew a fervent wave of anti-Semitism in the church known as the blood libel. This was a bunch of nasty rumors from the late 12th century accusing Jews of murdering Christian children to use their blood in the preparation of the Passover matzah. This also turned out to be a rumor that refused to die and has even carried on all the way up till today. Sometime between the 5th and 6th centuries, it became common practice to consume the blood of Roman gladiators to cure epilepsy. Pliny the Elder described a mad rush of spectators climbing down into the gladiator pits to drink the blood of the fallen warriors. But once gladiator fighting was banned around 400 CE, a new practice sprung up in which patients would drink the blood of executed prisoners, especially that of prisoners who had been beheaded. Some stories claim that epileptic patients would crowd around the scaffold with cups in hand waiting to snag some blood as it poured out of the decapitated corpse. In 1483, King Louis XI of France, who was also a paranoid religious fanatic, reportedly began extolling the virtues of drinking blood collected from healthy children in a vain attempt to cure himself of leprosy. In medieval England, some friars wrote a detailed account of the way they believed blood could be distilled to extract the magical elements to create a healing elixir. This was a painstaking process that involved covering it in dung for 40 days then taking the cooled liquid out and heating it in a copper vessel, then cooling again and filtering the separated liquid in order to create a clear water that the friars said was purer than any other liquid and could heal all wounds. Then, of course, there's also the story of the blood countess Elizabeth Bathory of 16th century Hungary, whom I did a previous episode about. According to popular belief, Bathory was suspected of murdering as many as 650 girls over three decades. Bathory is often described as a sadist who derived pleasure from the torture of young women, particularly those whose beauty rivaled her own. Many accounts also claim she murdered these young women and bathed in their blood out of her belief the warm blood could actually restore her own youth. This sort of magical thinking of blood as a restorative fluid would eventually lead some physicians to develop the concept of transfusion as we know it today. By the 1600s, several European physicians had begun experimenting with injecting dogs with a variety of fluids, including water, milk, beer, wine, and opium, just to see what would happen. By the 1660s, both the Royal Society and the French Academy of Sciences began showing some success with canine-to-canine blood transfusions. In 1628, Galen's long-standing belief that blood was produced by food, among other things, was finally put to rest by an English physician named William Harvey when he published a scientific essay that explained how blood and circulation really worked in animals. Through careful observation and the scientific method, Harvey was able to demonstrate that the volume of blood drained from inside sheep and pigs was far greater than the amount of food they had consumed. Not only that, but he also performed a demonstration by cutting open a live snake to show how blood pumped through the veins. This would eventually lead other physicians to begin considering the possibility that blood could be taken out of one living creature's circulatory system and put into another animal. For several years, the concept of the blood transfusion remained hugely controversial and even led to an actual murder trial. In 1667, members of the English Royal Society and the French Academy of Sciences were shocked when a young French physician named Jean-Baptiste Denis performed the first animal-to-human transfusion. 
Denise managed to successfully transfuse the blood of a lamb into a feverish young boy. Denise continued to perform his lamb blood transfusions on other patients. He next tried it on a butcher who was also probably the same man who provided him the sheep where he got the blood from. The butcher lived, but Denise's next patient wasn't quite so lucky. He next attempted his procedure on a mentally ill man named Moroy he discovered on the streets of Paris. But Moroy died and soon Denise found himself on trial for the man's murder. But the French court came to the startling decision that Denise was not guilty of the man's murder. Rather, the court determined that Moroy had been murdered by a cabal of physicians who wanted to put a stop to transfusions. There was even a greater fear that all these animal-to-human transfusions would somehow create a horrific human-animal hybrid. This argument was cited by the Royal Society, French Parliament, and the Catholic Church to ban blood transfusions for human beings for the next 150 years. The procedure wouldn't be attempted again until 1900 when Karl Landsteiner, a physician at the University of Vienna, made some of the earliest discoveries that led to the understanding that there were different blood types. One thing that is probably clear to you by now is how connected religion has always been to many of the beliefs about blood. In particular, its power to restore vitality. Of course, the central tenet of Catholicism is that of transubstantiation, the symbolic consumption of the body of Christ and of the drinking of his blood. But throughout history, there have been other Christian offshoots that have taken this belief a lot more literally. Take, for example, the story of the Samaritans. Back around Kansas City, Missouri in the late 1800s, rumors began to spread about a strange religious sect that had begun operating around the eastern part of the city. It wasn't until the beginning of 1890 when William O. Hackett, the secretary of the Humane Society, received a curious letter that anyone decided to investigate further. The letter read, Mr. Hackett, there is something I think ought to be called to your attention at once which I think is bad for a civilized community. There is John Wrinkle and his two children. He has been sick and he is crazy on religion. His little Minnie is 13 years old and his boy John is 11. Wrinkle has heard that people drink blood at the slaughterhouse for their health, and he said he believed in the Bible that preached that the well should make sacrifices for the sick. He did bleed his little boy and girl until they are wrecks, and he did drink the blood. It is leaked out, and unless something is done by you, the neighbors will take the matter in their own hands, and quick, too. He lives in a little piece of land near the new city limits. Yours respectfully, George West. Secretary Hackett informed the chief of police, Thomas Spears. He sent a Humane Society officer named Merrand or John Wrinkle's home, and that officer later reported encountering a disturbing scene. Inside the home lay two emaciated children. On the bed lay John Wrinkle, who was pale and skeletal, and clearly in the final stages of consumption. Officer Merrin questioned the man about the allegations he had been drinking his children's blood. But at first, Wrinkle denied it. So too did the children. But Officer Merrin couldn't get over how pale and bloodless the children appeared. He ordered the boy and girl to show him their arms. When they pulled back their sleeves, it became immediately clear they were all lying. Their limbs were crisscrossed with scars inside the elbow joint. Officer Merrin immediately demanded an explanation from John Wrinkle. The emaciated man finally confessed that it was true he had been drinking the children's blood in order to stay alive. But he swore they had both given it to him willingly. Although Wrinkle was not charged with any crime, the two children were taken away and placed in a children's home. Wrinkle remained adamant that he had done nothing wrong. 
He insisted he swore he had the authority of God on his side. The leader of his church had told him so. That man's name was Silas Wilcox, and he led a small religious order called the Samaritans. We don't know much about Silas Wilcox prior to him showing up in Kansas City around 1888 or 1889. We do know he was a traveling preacher whose fiery sermons emphasized the need to help the sick. There's a line from Leviticus 17.11 that reads, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Or in other words, blood can cure disease. This became a sort of mantra for the 20 or so members of Silas Wilcox's Samaritans. For a while, the Samaritans were content to visit the local slaughterhouse and drink fresh cow blood. But at some point over time, Wilcox decided it might be better if the group began drinking blood from one another. Now, if the group's members had any reluctance at first to do so, that all went away when they experienced a powerful demonstration of blood's healing abilities. At one point, Wilcox became very sick and was unable to go with the rest of the church members to the slaughterhouse. He then called upon the faithful members of his congregation to help save his life. A woman named Nancy Dixon stepped up and bared her arm to Wilcox. One of the other church members sliced open her arm with a knife, and Wilcox greedily sucked the blood from it. Remarkably, he recovered from his illness the very same day. This was all the convincing even the most skeptical members of the congregation needed to convince them the life of the flesh really was in the blood. After that, the church members stopped visiting slaughterhouses and instead began assembling at each other's homes and began exchanging blood. At these church meetings, the sickest members of the group would ask for assistance from their healthier brethren. The healthy would then supply the sick with the life-giving fluid running through their veins. When Chief Spears learned of all this, he tried to put a stop to it, but technically they had broken no law. There was nothing illegal about a group of consenting adults sharing their blood with one another. That didn't stop the local newspapers from writing a lot of sharp words about them, though. They were labeled human vampires, a hideous sect, and a band of fanatics in the press. Now, keep in mind, it's impossible to say just how much of the story of the Samaritans we can or should believe. Whereas there are several newspaper accounts about them from the era, there don't seem to be a lot of other corroborating records still in existence that prove much of the story. At the same time, there are plenty of records from the era that do show that the practice of drinking blood really did exist back then among a lot of other people. In 1898, a painting by Joseph Ferdinand Guldry, titled Beauvoirs de Sang, or The Blood Drinkers, caused quite a stir at a Paris salon. Guldry was an artist who often painted realistic depictions of life inside workshops and factories. But in The Blood Drinkers, he captured a scene that shocked everyone. An article in the July 24, 1898, Brooklyn Daily Eagle describes it as such. The scene is a slaughterhouse. A powerful bull lies on the ground and the hammer that killed him is seen near the head. Blood is trickled and spattered over the vicinity. Whole beeves and sides and quarters hang on hooks about the large bare room. On the other side of the fallen animal are eight people, aged or sickly, who have assembled to drink the warm blood that pours from a rent in the animal's throat. One butcher is hauling at a cord and another stoops over the wound and hands the red fluid to the patients. A woman on whom a father is urging a glass of the disgusting medicine, or food, however it may be regarded, turns away and presses it back, unable to look. The New York Times called the painting revoltingly disgusting, 
At the same time, it was showing an apparently very real practice the artist had witnessed with his own eyes. Not only was blood drinking being practiced in Kansas City's slaughterhouses, but similar reports were also being made in New York City, Cincinnati, St. Louis, New Orleans, and Johnstown, Pennsylvania. By the late 1800s, American slaughterhouses had become state-of-the-art factories for efficiently killing and bleeding animals. Henry Ford even reportedly studied their disassembly methods and began applying some of these ideas to his automotive assembly lines. This also would have been a completely free activity for the poorest and sickest members of society. Most American slaughterhouses and butchers wouldn't have any use for the blood and otherwise would have just washed it down the drain. So when people began lining up with cups in hand, they wouldn't have had much reason to turn them away. One report claims there was a woman who made daily visits to a New York City slaughterhouse and downed three full cups of blood on each occasion. A Cincinnati reporter decided to see what all the fuss was about and after drinking a warm tumbler of bull's blood, became a convert. He described it as the richest cream, warm with a tart sweetness and the healthy strength of the pure wine that gladdeneth the hearts of man. Much like wine connoisseurs, there even grew up a selection of blood aficionados who preferred to visit Jewish slaughterhouses to get their blood. Some stories claim that some choosy blood drinkers came to decide that the blood they got from a traditional slaughterhouse, where they stunned the animal first, came out thick and lifeless. They instead preferred the ritual slaughter seen in kosher slaughterhouses, where the animal's throat was cut and the blood flowed more freely. For the most part, cow blood seems to be the go-to source. Chickens, pigs, sheep, and goats don't appear to have been used as often. One suggestion is that those animals weren't considered as potent as that of a large, strong heifer. Among the beliefs that coincide with blood drinking is the idea that there is somehow a transference of strength and vitality that comes from ingesting the warm fluid. The late 1800s was also the era of what was then referred to as consumption, what we know better today as tuberculosis. This was a terrible bacterial infection that attacked the lungs and could turn a formerly healthy individual into a pale and withered husk of who they once were. By the turn of the 20th century, consumption became the number one cause of death in the United States. It's also cited by a lot of historians for creating the popular belief in vampires. You need only look at a patient with severe consumption with their pale skin, blood-stained lips, and red-rimmed eyes to think they were the walking dead. But keep in mind, these were real people clinging to life and searching desperately for a cure. The sight of someone coughing blood into a handkerchief back then was as good as a death sentence. Because doctors were unable to cure this deadly disease, some patients turned to an unlikely alternative, the local butcher. Many newspapers across the United States published articles throughout the late 1800s describing the hundreds of sick people who flocked to local slaughterhouses looking for a bloody cure. The St. Louis Globe Democrat once published an article declaring that blood-drinking vampires are not just a part of fiction, but actually exist in St. Louis. The reporter who wrote that story went to Abe Max Slaughterhouse to investigate further, and Abe told him that not only did he have a line of people showing up in his doorstep looking to grow healthy and strong from drinking blood, but that it actually worked, too. Mac told the reporter one man came to him weighing 90 pounds and being as weak as a child. But after a year and a half of drinking blood, Mac declared the man was now as strong as a prize fighter. But even back then, most physicians argued that drinking blood couldn't cure consumption and most likely caused more problems than it solved. Today, modern science tells us that drinking too much blood can be extremely hazardous to one's health. Because blood is so rich in iron, anyone who consumes too much of it is at risk of an iron overdose. 
This is a condition called hemochromatosis that can lead to a wide variety of diseases and even death. Back in the 19th century, some physicians claimed that the drinking of blood could actually cause the patient to begin craving blood and turn evil. Some of the newspaper articles written during the late 19th centuries openly speculated that these consumptive patients could become addicted to drinking blood and would even begin looking to any source they could get their hands on to find more. Or in other words, they turn into vampires. Women in particular were thought to be particularly susceptible to such temptation, largely because they were considered to be the weaker sex and therefore more vulnerable to temptation. In 1876, the St. Louis Globe Dispatch published an article titled Female Vampires that described several women dying of a consumption who became addicted to drinking blood. One story told of a woman who had been prescribed drinking blood four times a day for her deteriorating health. One day, the woman's husband fell down the stairs and cut the back of his hand. The sight of the blood unleashed an unquenchable thirst in her, and she immediately began to suck the blood directly from his wrist. She drank so much of the man's blood that it became bedridding. The woman's landlady helped nurse the husband back to health, but at one point she left him alone for a little while, only to return and find the man's wife had torn off his bandages and reopened his wound so that she might consume some more. Even today around the world, there are thousands of people who identify themselves as living vampires. It's estimated there may be as many as 5,000 people living in the U.S. alone who regularly drink blood. Of course, in general, these sanguinarians try to keep things a lot more sanitary than their ancestors did. Most of the bloodletting down nowadays is performed with alcohol swabs, syringes, and clean scalpels between consenting adults. At the same time, though, throughout history, there have been a number of cases of people who claim to be vampires who also took things way too far. Back in New Orleans in 1932, one story tells of a young girl who escaped from a house shared by brothers John and Wayne Carter. The girl ran down Royal Street, found a police officer, and told him that she had just escaped being kidnapped. She said that she and several other girls were tied up and being held inside a nearby home by a couple of brothers who were drinking their blood. As evidence, the girl showed the officer her bloody wrist. She said the brothers cut open and kept bandaged so that they could repeatedly drink from her. The girl was taken to the hospital and officers were dispatched to the Carter brothers' apartment at the corner of Royal and St. Anne Streets. The brothers weren't home, but upon breaking in, the police allegedly found at least a dozen bodies, all with their wrists slit and the blood drained. There were also at least four women who were still alive and tied up, each of them bearing several bloody wounds. Ten burly police officers remained behind to stake out the apartment and wait for the Carter brothers to return. The two men finally showed up after dark, and when they got there, the police pounced on them. But this turned out to be much more difficult than anticipated. According to the legend, it took all ten officers to subdue the two brothers, both of whom only stood around five foot six and 160 pounds. But for some strange reason, these two average-sized men were a lot stronger than they looked. Some versions of the tale even claim the brothers managed to break free and both leap from their second-story balcony unharmed, before being recaptured along the docks the following day. The story also claims that once the Carter brothers were finally in police custody, they demanded that the authorities go ahead and kill them. They said that they had developed the taste for human blood and that if they were to ever go free, then they would surely kill again and again. The Carter brothers were ultimately executed and laid to rest in a New Orleans crypt. But several years later, the crypt was reopened. Only both brothers' remains were mysteriously missing. After that, legend has it, 
that some of the people who went on to live in the Carter Brothers' former apartment at Royal and St. Anne began reporting having disturbing nightmares and of even seeing shadowy figures standing on their balcony. One former tenant named Felipe allegedly went mad and was later arrested by police after going on a murderous rampage, leaving 32 victims behind, all of whom were completely drained of blood. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. In my show, The Conspirators, I tell you the stories from the darkest corners of history. These are the tales your teacher never told you. You can hear stories about serial killers, horrific disasters, survival stories, unsolved mysteries, and unexplained events. You can hear the story of one of the worst serial killers in American history and why he might have been framed. The real story behind the Bermuda Triangle or the terrible secret that might have been hidden behind the walls of a Scottish castle. If all that sounds interesting to you, then I hope you'll subscribe to The Conspirators wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.